This is Black Country Blokes chewing the fat. Listen, listen, listen. I've been hearing a lot lately about men don't talk. But in my experience, men do talk, just people aren't listening. So it's going to be me and a group of blokes discussing our struggles and victories through life. Warning, there may be some bad language, so apologies to all the moms, especially my own. Let's get going. Listen, listen, listen. Abby, now, this is the Black Country Blokes, tuning the fact with me, Kev Dillon, Craig Pinches, Aaron Jew, Lee Cadman, and our special guest today is Kieran Locke. Now, Kieran's been in many a band. He's played <coughs> in some massive stadiums. He's even been on tour with Legend, which is Bon Jovi. He's here today to yeah talk about what he's done, but we, we see these these rock stars and people in bands as uh, these people invincible. But anxiety, anxiety don't give a kipper's dick where you're playing, who you're boxing in front of. It affects us all. So, Kieran, brother, thank you ever so much for coming on. Let's, no problem. Let's, let's get started. Where, where, where do you want to start it from? Well, yeah. So, anxiety and panic attacks have been the bane of my life um, for over 18 years now, really, I think. Um, I was diagnosed officially during lockdown with panic disorder, health anxiety and separation anxiety. Um, I think for me, it started at college, really. I've always been anxious as a kid. Um, growing up, I was always the nervous kid. My mum's chucking calms tablets down my neck because I've got an exam or I've got a performance. But I think it played a big part in my secondary school life as well because I kind of rebelled a little bit. I was a little shit in secondary school um, and going through therapy now, looking back, it was part 70% anxiety and 30% because I was a bit of a cock. Um, <laughs> that's what it was. I was a teenager, I had full of hormones, but at the same time I was going through in my head what I assumed everybody else was and I kind of rebelled a little bit. I didn't want to listen to things, didn't want to do anything anyone told me, didn't like authority. And then I went to college and yeah, for, for me that's where my kind of story journey starts really. I had a close friend of mine pass away um, when we were 18. Uh, suddenly died in his sleep um, overnight. Known him since I was in nursery. Was mates all through school, secondary school, primary school, secondary school and college. Kind of wasn't kind of wasn't the best of mates in college. We kind of found our own friendship groups, but we still, still connected and we still hung out and stuff. Um, and yeah, he went home one afternoon after college with the flu. Um, again, didn't wake up, um, died in his dad's arms at half past five the following morning. Um, what, and from what, was there, it, what was it, Keith? Oh, well, it's been years now, but there was loads of rumours going around saying he'd been to a gig and got hit in the head, he smoked too much weed, all this kind of stuff. But it turned out he had some really rare, I might be wrong, but it was some kind of rare heart condition um, that he had from a kid and just wasn't picked up. And yeah, it just got, it just got him early in life, sadly. Um, and from that, I kind of, I didn't believe it at first for a few weeks. People kept telling me, oh, Matt's died, Matt's died, Matt's died. And I was like, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. So I was messaging him on Facebook or whatever. And I was like, he's not, he's fucking about, he's he's, he's, he's messing around. But yeah, he, he, obviously he actually sadly did die. And for some reason, something triggered in my head. So I already knew at this point that my anxiety was rife. Like I was nervous about everything. I was constantly in my own head. Then out of nowhere... I just became a hypochondriac um, to the point where because he died early, I was dying early. And in my head, that was the that was the end game. So I spent the I spent that whole year alone convincing myself I had leukemia. <clears throat> and 
my gums would bleed and I brush my teeth like they would normally if you've got some kind of just a gum disease or you need a simple treatment at the dentist. But in my head, I've got leukemia. I'm going to die. I would go through brain tumours. I'd have brain tumours. I'd have MS. I'd be having a stroke um, to the point where I would take myself off to the toilet at college because I was panicking so much. I'd have to go and test myself if I had a brain tumour. And by test myself, this might sound funny. To, like Looking back now, it's, really, it's actually quite funny. I'd sit in the toilet and I'd do this because I Googled it and it told me if I could touch my finger and my nose constantly without with, with, with minimal effort, the chances are I haven't got a brain tumour. So by doing that, that, that was my reassurance. So I brought myself back down. I'd go back to college into my lecture. and But then 10 minutes later, I get a pain in my left arm and I'm thinking, God, I'm having a heart attack. And it all stemmed from my friend dying. I assumed... I was going to die early like him. I assumed that was how it goes. And because I'd known him all my life, I thought, well, I've known him all my life. If that's going to happen to him, it's going to happen to me. Um, yeah. And then my first major panic attack was actually at his funeral. Um, as they were, sounds quite morbid, doesn't it? As they were putting his body into the ground at um, Wollaston, no, Worsley Church. Um, I remember just all of a sudden being hit by a hot sweat my heart started racing I felt like I couldn't breathe my hands were shaking and I literally just a ball of sweat and I just kind of I remember I remember just sitting back on this little like fence that was by the grave and just thinking Christ I'm gonna get I'm gonna join him in a minute I was like I'm 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 gone and I remember as soon as it was was like respectfully okay to do so I just ran off I just ran I ran off I went up to Worsley somewhere like got myself back together and went to the wake and then literally from that day um every day I woke up and my first thought was I'm dying today <clears throat> and it could be anything it could be absolutely anything it could be um heart attack strokes I had a whole episode where I thought I had MS I had an episode where um I thought I had got a really bad heart problem and it was nothing. It was looking back now and being on my journey now and looking back at what was causing that and triggering that. It was just me taking myself from A to Z really quickly and I wasn't stepping back and looking at what well, actually I've got a pain in my arm because I've been sat like this in the lesson in, in, in the lesson all day and it was always worst case scenario. Um and through college that carried on. Like there was a number of times in college where I'd get the college bus home to Quarry Bank. And then I'd get on the 222 to us as all and I'd get the bus to the hospital because I thought in my head, I've got a brain tumour, for example. I need to seek help because I'm going to die. I'd get to the hospital, us as all. I'd get off the bus. I'd walk to the doors of A&E and turn around and go back and get the bus back home. And when I got home, my mum would be like, but yeah, where, where you been? It's six o'clock. I'd be like, oh, I've just popped to the pub for a bit with the lads after college. Like, no one knew about this at all. I never told my girlfriend at the time. I never told my family. I've only just told my family this December last year um, and my friends. Nobody knew what I was getting. So I've kept it quiet and kept it in for 18, 16, 18 years. Um, and I think when I told Lee initially, he was shocked um, because you wouldn't, like me and Kev were speaking about earlier, there's a mask that you put on. And for me, I didn't want to take that mask off and feel shame. And I didn't want to feel embarrassed and feel like I'm the only one who has this feeling. Um, so, yeah, I went from literally 
from my whole college life being quite bad, um, drinking a lot to help myself mask it to the point where I'd be blacking out drunk, um, waking up in random people's houses under stairs and I'd either not go out or go out and be the drunkest because to me it was that what was at the time was helping me deal with it. To me, I felt normal. It was making me feel normal. Um, and it wasn't. It was making me feel 10 times worse two days later. Um, and this carried on and it carried on and carried on and carried on. And then I went to university. Um, my ang- my anxiety was high then as well because obviously I'm from Koi Bank. I've never been from Koi Bank to Benador. I mean, that's the only place I've been to. I've only been to Spain, Koi Bank, Spain. I hadn't really travelled that much and I was moving to, to Oxford um to Oxford Brooks University. I, I didn't go to Oxford Uni. I'm not that clever. Um <laughs> and yeah, and my anxiety was like, fuck, I'm gonna meet those new people. What if they don't like me? What if I'm what if I die there? What if I'm gonna get some illness and I can't get back home to my mum and dad and to the to the, the place that I feel comfortable? And in all fairness, uni kind of helped me because it kind of disappeared, my panic attacks and anxiety a little bit. I was drinking a hell of a lot at uni um, and other stuff. And that also, again, was masking it, but I wasn't getting the two-day kind of panic attack right after and the feelings. Um, I would have the odd panic attack, but again, because I couldn't tell anybody, I'd go into my room and I'd lie in the dark and I'd just let it pass and I'd, I'd, I'd lie under the quilt, just keep saying to myself, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay. I'm going to the pub later. I'm seeing all my mates. We'll be fine. And I'll just give myself 10 minutes and I'll calm down. And that happened really at uni. And I think because of the pace of life, I was an adult then. I wasn't when I'm mum and dad. I was doing my own washing, doing my own food shopping. I was going to lectures. I was going out socialising with a big group of people. I think my pace of life had changed. Um, and I'd came into this new me almost. And I thought, yeah, I'm fine. Like, and I got to a point where I actually thought I was cured. I thought that, I was fine. I just it was just a thing because I was a teenager and Matt died and I got into my own head a little bit. But actually, I'm I'm fine now. I'm an adult. I'm 21. I'm gonna be okay. And then yeah, it just <clears throat> I dropped out of university um, purely because it was just it was shit. I didn't like the course. Um, I did music, but it wasn't for me. It wasn't the kind of line, the kind of path that I wanted to take. Um, so I made the hard decision after. Sadly, I was there for a full two years, but and I made some really good friends. Um, and the friends, I think, also is what got me through it as well. I had one particular mate, Jack, who I'm still good friends with now, and I think he was one of the reasons why the panic attacks kind of put at ease because I always knew if I felt funny in the morning or I felt like I was going to have a, an episode, he was only downstairs and I can go and sit with him and he'd just take it all away. A bit like the beer, but... It, but it was eight o'clock in the morning, so I couldn't exactly go for a drink. So it was that kind of coping mechanism, if you like. Um, and then, yeah, that, that 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 kind of died off. It was ad hoc, really. And then I left uni, dropped out of uni and kind of come home. And then it just all hit me again. And that's when I'd like my slight bouts of depression came in as well. Um, I just got home and then everything was a problem. Like, am I going to get a job? I had to sign on the dole which was, for me, was a bit like, again, it was a bit like, I shouldn't be doing this. I've just came out of potentially a degree and getting a full-time a full time job as a teacher or whatever. And I was like, oh, what do I do? I've got no qualifications. I've only ever worked at Mackey's and done little jobs here and there. Yeah, it was just a bit, it all just, it, it all just got on top of me. And I think looking back now, 
because I wasn't telling anybody and I wasn't speaking about it, that made me worse, a lot worse. Um, and then I met my wife. Sorry, can, before you before you go any further, you know, because when you're saying about like um, it was everything, like my arms hurting, so I've got a heart attack, and because I couldn't breathe, I've got lung cancer. Can you imagine how bad the, this generation is going to be with that same yeah. problem? Because everything at the moment, you, you haven't got the flu, you've got the potential the corona, or and I, I think that meant a fear that's been thrown into people from people who would consider themselves not conspiracy theorists or people, you know, when you've been bombarded with so much uh, doom and gloom, I really think is that, that what, what is the name of that condition? Uh, it's called hypochondria. Um, when you kind of think something's wrong with you, but mine kind of fell into a health anxiety as well. So health the hypochondria, yeah, the hypochondria steered the health anxiety. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I think you're totally right. I think the younger generations are going to be affected by it because now all, all you've got to do is type into Google pain in my left arm and it will say heart attack in capitals at the top. Um, and that's what gets people, that's what used to get me. I used to, I used to use Dr. Google and, it, and it, it, I used to sit there all, all night on my phone reading about strokes and leukemia and get myself this absolute whirlwind um so kieran I, I, like obviously with my daughter i use google quite a lot to search out what you know if we've had you, you look at doctor's letters sometimes that are sent you like what the hell is, what that's what's that you know it's foreign to me these words so yeah. i'll use it to search but i also know i have to be in the right frame of mind to do that if I do it, if I sometimes I'll just I'll I'll just have to ignore that letter and that and just kind of go okay I can't deal with that now because I know if I search Google it never it it just doesn't give you the it fills you with fear it, yeah it does it fills you it it, it can definitely well it can fill you with fear if you let it and I know if yeah. I'm in that wrong frame of mind and I search something it will just fill me with fear and I won't sleep for, for three yeah, weeks exactly, until I know exactly but on the other hand I also use it quite often for like Google Scholar. And Google Scholar is absolutely fantastic to any research that's gone on with pretty much anything within medical and sports fields and anything, anything like that. So you use Google Scholar and then you get actual information that is useful. So I'll it works. Have, I'll have to use that. So I've, yeah, I've, I've, I've not heard of that before. Yeah, type Google Scholar and then you every, the research papers that are on there is just amazing. Um, and it goes into to great detail. A lot of it you won't understand, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is really, really, really detailed. It's brilliant, brilliant to use. In all fairness, I don't Google no more. I don't Google anything. My wife does that for me. Uh, <laughs> so if I've got like something, and generally now, now I'm on my, and I'll talk about it in a bit, but now I've got better, but now I'm on my journey. I, I call it a journey of self-improvement rather than a recovery or anything. Like I feel like it's just getting to a better version and a happier version of myself. Um, sorry, that light's really bad. Um, so I literally go now, genuinely like oh i've had this eye ache for like a week like i say to soph do you mind just googling it for me just seeing if i need an eye test or what it, or if i'm looking at having too much screen time or something like i don't go in the first minute i don't go oh i've got a pain in my left eye i've got cancer of the eye which mm. is what is 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 what i would have done um and yeah so she, but she she's great because she'll be like on google and she'll go you haven't got a brain tumor you haven't got cancer Ah, you need an eye test, you wally. I'd be like, oh, thank you, and then I'll be all right then. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, Google's a horrible place. I don't advise so I think, anyone who. I think that's great advice, actually. To if someone is it does does do the same as what Kieran was doing, he's actually asking someone else to then search that symptom because they'll cut yeah. out they'll 
cut out the bad, weren't they? Basically, yeah. and just go. It was actually. It makes more sense that you've just got this. Yeah, or you it, just need to idea because she's obviously so logical and she doesn't get a headache and thinks she's dying. She just get a headache. Goes, oh, I need paracetamol and have a nap. Where I'm like in my head, if I it, when I used to get a headache, I was planning my funeral in my head and what song I was going to have and everything. Like it was a, it was, and it's funny now because I can because yeah. because I'm better. I can laugh about it and looking back, it's like shit. Like that's kind of the thing. But now. She literally go, what's up with you? You seem, a, you seem a bit anxious today. I'll go, oh, I've had this pain in my leg for like a week now. Do you mind just having a look? She'll be like, yeah, hang on a minute. And if it's nothing, she won't say anything. She'll go, well, there's nothing here that says you've got anything. So you just need to like have some muscle up and go to bed. And I was like, okay. So yeah, that if that 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 is one piece of advice I'd give is if you are going to go on Google and do do like Dr. Google stuff, get someone else to do it who's who's who doesn't look at it and freak out like like I would. The thing is, when you're in the fog and you want answers, and you're looking at it and going, you might need glasses. Oh, oh, well, no, I'm sure. I'm sure I've got a optic neurosis, I'm sure. And it's how our mind runs away with us, isn't it? It takes down that rabbit hole. We yeah. were saying off, off camera earlier, when, when I have panic attacks, I feel like I'm having a stroke because my face will be numb. I can't swallow it. And then I have to remind myself, you know, it's a panic attack. But then yeah. it's a part of my brain going, well, how about this time it isn't a panic attack? How about this time you am dying? Yeah. And it's, it's how our mind takes us on that nasty journey, isn't it? Yeah, it's horrible. And it's a horrible journey, and I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. I really wouldn't. And like my panic attacks, they come in the form of my throat closes up. Yeah. And I feel like I can't breathe. And yeah. then I sweat. And I mean, I, my, my go-to is, when I have a panic attack, is I take my shirt off right away, and I go outside, or I'm pacing up and down. And I'm walking. All I'm doing is I'm just making my heart rate faster, and I'm just I'm not helping myself. But to me, I'm like, it's that fight or flight, that pure fight or flight. Um, and I'm I'm literally there going, oh no, I'm I'm gonna die. And my go-to phrase is, call me an ambulance. That's what I always say. When I'm in a proper panic attack, I always say, Sophie, call me an ambulance because I can't breathe. And bless her, she's learned how to like cope with and deal with the the episode, and she'll kind of hold my hands on my knees and just breathe with me and I'm fine. Yeah. Five, ten minutes, I'm absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, going back to like university, I left university, come back home and it came back tenfold, to be fair. Um, the health anxiety was a big problem and it became a family joke because I didn't tell them what I was going through. I always aired with my mum and dad. I'd say like, oh, so I've got a brain tumour in a jokey way because by saying it to someone who was rational thinking would say to me, oh, you haven't, don't be... Like, don't, don't be sad. And I'd, I'd take that off my mum, because she's my mum. I'd be like, yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, you are right. And then I feel fine again. It was all that. It was looking for positive, positive affirmations from everybody and everywhere I could find. Um, but yeah, and then I'd go out, and I'd just be like, I'd be in Merriel, for example, and I'd just, all of a sudden, I'd just, I'd say, I have a panic attack middle of Merriel. And I'd be on the phone to the missus. I'm like, I'm having a panic attack. Like, can you just talk to me for a minute? And she'd be like, yeah, just, just, just breathe. You'll be fine. Literally, two minutes later, I'm absolutely fine. And that this would be ongoing. I'd be anywhere. I'd be at work. I'd be at my mum and dad's. I'd be out. I'd be in the pub. And it would just literally hit me and me and Kev were saying earlier, it just comes out of nowhere. You wouldn't mind if there was a reason, but I could be sat downstairs on a sofa now, put the baby to bed, make a cup of tea, have a beer, whatever. And all of a sudden, it's like a, like a car's hit me. And it just, I just go, Vroom, and I feel myself burn, like burning from the feet up. And then I get sweaty. And, but yeah, and then like I had... um. Small bout of depression where I just felt really negative about everything. Um, I used to say stuff like to my missus about like I don't want to be here anymore. Like 
it's best if I'm not here because if I'm not here, I can't be having these feelings. Um, and she's any person that I told as well. So it was hard for her because she couldn't talk to anybody because she respected that. I didn't want people to know. And she took that and, and like, I massively respect her for that, for doing that. But it was also hard for her to have me sat in with the spoons on a Saturday afternoon, having a beer and a burger. And I burst into tears crying because I don't know what's going on. And that, that, and that happened a couple of times. I'd be sat having my dinner with her and all of a sudden I'd just be in the, in the middle of a pub crying my eyes out. And I don't know why. And yeah, I just got to a point where it was all really just, it was like a massive weight on me. It was, it was the health anxiety, the hypochondria, the depression. I got really bad bouts of anger as well. Um, and I think looking back now, the anger came from, I was drinking a hell of a lot. Um, and I've only just recently stopped drinking a lot because um, that was, for me, a coping mechanism. Um I had a lot going on. I was I was trying to get a job. I was trying to obviously I was trying to reassure my parents that I I wasn't a failure. I know that they never saw me like that, and they was totally above board in me making decisions to leave university. But to me, I'd failed because I wanted to go and do that. And it just I think everyone's gone on top of me, and it was just a, a like a, like bags of potatoes on top of me, and just going and going and going, and then I just I just caved, and I was like I can't do this anymore. Um, so I, I tried to reach out for help, didn't work because. I could have an absolute meltdown on the one night, for example, and be on the floor crying and panicking and saying stupid stuff and getting angry. But the next morning, I feel absolutely fine. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm all right now. I'm, I'm fine. And it happened again and again. And every time it happened, I'd say to the missus, oh, I'm going to call a doctor tomorrow. I'm going to call a therapist. I'm going to, I want to change. And sadly, I didn't. And it kept going. And then I was just drinking more and I was drinking more. I wasn't like, like, I wasn't drinking like morning till night it was just that beer on a night time was getting me through the day so that was my kind of my go-to so I'd spend all day at work when I finally got a job which was at the corn <clears throat> and I'd all, all, all I'd want to do is finish work and go to the other side of the bar and have two or three points and then, and then I'd go around the brick and I'd have two or three more then I'd go home and I'd have four or five six cans and then you know what I mean it just and that was a daily thing and I'd, I'd done that for many years I'd I'd, I'd I'd have four cans of lager on the night and a couple of whiskies, or I'd have I'd go to the pub at any opportunity. So if I was in Merry Hill, I'd have to go to Weatherspoons and have one point, and I'd literally down it in three, and I'd go because I'd felt anxious about going into a Merry Hill. That was my medicine. That was what was helping me feel normal again. And yeah, it just kind of went on and on for years. Um, I reached out for a bit of help. I didn't quite get there. I bought a book, um, which is just called Panic Attacks, which is absolutely fantastic. That helped me for a little bit. Um, and then I went downhill again. The drinking got heavy again. The going out a lot. The just not looking after myself um, mentally and physically. Gigging was a big thing because um, music for me has been a big part of my life. It always has been since I was like eleven. I've been playing drums for twenty years this year. It's always been a big part of my life. But it was also a bit of a downfall as well because we with we, with the captains we got to a point where. We'd be gigging three, four, five times a week. And we'd all work full time and have missuses and have other things on the, going on on the outside, like personal stuff and hobbies and other stuff. And it gets to the point where you just find yourself, you're either in a studio or on stage and you're always drinking. And when I'm on stage, I'm absolutely fine. But I was saying to Kev earlier, like before I go on stage, I was obviously nervous because people would always ask me, are you nervous? I'd be like, no, no, no. But I know, looking back now, when I'm anxious and nervous, I always cough 
yawn and dry heave. That is my kind of mechanisms that you know that I'm anxious. That's how my wife knows. Now, if I keep yawning or I start or like fake coughing, she's like, you're anxious, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, I am. But I'd man it up and I'd be like, I hate using that word, but that's what I used to be like. I used to be like, no, I'm not nervous, man. Like, I do it all the time. I'm fine being a cocky twat. But when I'm on stage, absolutely fine. It's like, it was all, it's almost like all the emotions that have been going on all those years and all those days and those feelings, I let rip. Um, and I think can if I, you watch me play I, as well. Can I just jump in on that, kid? Because something interesting you said, like, fake coughing, <clears throat> clear the throat and yawning. Both of them are like almost convincing yourself you can breathe and swallow, isn't it? Exactly what it is. Exactly what it is for me. Um, and it's got worse since COVID, the yawning. Um, COVID My lungs still work, kind of thing. Yeah, that's like, what I do. <gasps> I, I find myself sat here I'm in the still... day and I go, yeah. I take a big breath and if I can catch that breath, I reassure myself that I'm all right. And it's weird. It's yeah. a weird thing. And I used to that a lot, but since COVID's been around and obviously it being a lung problem and me having previous history of hypochondria and all this kind of stuff, it it played a big part. Um, so, yeah, the music stuff got me ups and downs. And, yeah, I was fine at gigs, but I'd, I'd, have, I'd have to have five or six pints before I played. It was always that connection. And since I've started my journey on becoming a better person, my go-to and my trigger has been the alcohol. That's what's been making me feel normal, but also making me 10 times worse. And... It was a vicious cycle. It was a cycle. Everything was a cycle. It was wake up, panic. Ah, I'm going to pub later. Have a beer. Feel fine all night. And then, like when when um, when COVID it, I got made. I got put on furlough first, um, and then I lost my job shortly after. Um, and that was it. Then I was kind of like, shit. I've got a mortgage. I've got a wife. I've got a child. I've got bills. Like. Am I going to be able to get work with the current climate? Is people are people going to want me with my skill set? Is my skill set going to die out? And it was kind of worrying. I was a stay at home. Well, the first four weeks we was home together because nursery was closed and my wife was off on furlough too. But she she went back to work quite quickly, and I was like, literally hit with the realization that I'm going to have to be a stay at home dad now for the foreseeable. And without sounding nasty, I wasn't prepared for that because that wasn't how I thought last year was going to go like like millions of other people so i just kind of let it all get back on top of me again and it kind of just all resurfaced and i was depressed massively i'd have regular breakdowns um on the night time mainly um I'd, i said to lee on the phone of the week i never thought a two-year-old would make me cry on the stairs and it did because i loved it it was amazing i've, I've got to see my little girl grow up for a year near enough and spend that time with her but from a mental health side of things I wasn't helping myself so the whole thing got up me I was drinking a lot I was buying beer every day I was drinking every night I was staying up till one two in the morning drinking every day because when I started drinking at six o'clock I felt normal again I felt like me and I didn't want it to end so I was stopping up and I was finding any reason Mrs was going to bed and I was going oh, I'm just going to watch this for an hour and I'd be straight in the cupboard and I'd get two cans out and I'd sit next to me in the can or I'd be in the shed having a cigarette and a can. And it's like, you just realise it builds and builds and builds. Um, and for me, the turning point for me was November the 14th last year. Um, I was doing the loft. I was boarding the loft upstairs. Um, and I felt a bit funny in the morning, a bit panicky, a bit anxious. Um, got up there, spent all day in the loft, came down, had a shower, put the baby to bed. 
come downstairs, Soph got me a can of beer, opened it. I had a sip. Boom. I had the biggest panic attack I've ever had in my life, personally. Um, I just suddenly went from being coherent and normal to shaking. I was literally like, I was uncontrollably shaking and I couldn't breathe and I was pacing around. I was just shouting, call me an ambulance. I had my wife trying to calm me down. I had my father-in-law on FaceTime talking me through. Um, he's a great man. He was talking me through um, what's happening to my body. He was telling me about like, oh, it's okay. You just let too much adrenaline get in and you're just trying to fight that off now and calm down. But nothing would, nothing, nothing was helping me. Um, and like I said before, like my panic attacks would, I would have either one or two a day, two or three a month. But over lockdown, I was having up to six a day. So on, 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 on bad days, I'd have about six panic attacks a day. And this day, this was the only one I was having, and it was a big one. It lasted for an, about an hour and 40 minutes. My wife timed it. And I have ne never actually felt like I was going to die than I did that night. And all I kept saying was, call me an ambulance, call me an ambulance. And I had my wife saying, you don't want to go to hospital at the minute because there were actually ill people there. Like, you don't want to go there with COVID. You're not ill. I promise you, you're not ill. And it was... But in my head at the time, I can't think rationally. I'm thinking that they're, they're the ones who are telling me lies and they can see I'm dying, but they don't want to tell me. And i am got my shirt off and I'm running up and down the house. And yeah, an hour and 40 minutes and I just couldn't stop shaking. And do you know what I did? I got on the phone to 111 and I was about to call 111 because all I wanted was reassurance from a medical expert to tell me at that moment I was not dying and it's in my head. And I, I, I rang 111 and just before the answer, I put the phone down. This is going to sound really silly. And I went, so I'm taking the bins out, right? Out of nowhere. I just went and took the bins out. Down the side of the house, in the bin, come back in, absolutely fine. And that is all because I just, I automatically told myself I need a distraction. And it was like at that moment, I'd had like an epiphany where I understood now how my panic attacks work. It's got to this point where I understand now that all I've got to do is distract myself, where before I'd get myself in such a tears and such a, a build-up of emotions and it would take me 10 minutes to come down, but it would always play in my mind. I wouldn't have that distraction. But this time, because it was going on for over an hour, I was either saying to myself, I need help now. This is my time to reach out and get help. Or... I'm actually dying and I couldn't wait up. And I was like, well, if I take the bins out and get outside in the cold air and come back in, if I still feel like this, I'm calling 999. I've got to go to hospital. Went outside, done the bins, come back in. I played a bit of guitar actually as well, just to just kind of keep myself distracted. And I was absolutely fine. And <clears> the next day I was straight on the phone to the doctors, um, had a couple of like sessions with the doctor. She told me basically, well, I went through everything like I've gone through with you guys, but obviously in a bit more detail about the anger and stuff and, the depression and the anxiety. And yeah, she, she diagnosed me with panic disorder um, and health anxiety and put me on um, beta blockers and diazepam or something um, for a couple of weeks, which I took. Um, I took them and they helped a little bit, but towards the end of the doses, I felt myself, I felt that they wasn't working for me. So I came off them quite quickly and touch wood. I've been okay since. I've been absolutely, yeah, I've been, I'm, I'm meditating I am running now. I've started running, which is a stupid idea because it's it's horrible. Um, <laughs> it's hard work. Oh, it kills me. Absolutely kills me. I just started doing that, and I think 
I've stopped drinking, like not totally. I just don't drink every day. I have a beer on a weekend myself to four. So I'll go and buy four beers on a Friday and I'll make sure I only have two on Friday, two on Saturday. Or if I drink all four on the Friday, it's all gone for the weekend. I'll kind of like give myself like a, a ration almost. Um, but that's helped as well because going through my therapy and me on my own going looking back at stuff, the, the alcohol was a big part for me. It, 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 it wasn't helping. It wasn't helping me at all. And I had to knock that on the head. So stop drinking, stop smoking and stop caffeine all in the same time. It wasn't a pretty few weeks. I've I, I, I got to admit, I struggled a little bit. Um, if you think like caffeine and alcohol, it's like any other drug. You have a peak and then you have a drop. And when, when yeah. we're sloshed, we're on our peak, boom, boom, boom. And then when it starts working its way at the system, but a, a counsellor once explained to me, you have an adult and a kid. When you're drunk, the adult shuts up and the kids, they're going, wow, he's busting up the blanks, eating all the chocolate. But then when the adult wakes up, he's giving the child the bollocking. And that's all the hangover is, isn't it? You've had your fun, but now you've got to pay for it. And then that makes yeah. you feel worse because I've, I've had a, I've been silly, now I'm having a telling off. I felt, I feel bad anyway, but now I've got myself giving me a bollocking and now I feel worse. So then you have more beers to shut the parents up again. And that's the vicious cycle. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, ma- it's massive. It's like, and I got to a point where I was going out. I either had one pint and go home, or I'd drink until I blacked out. And any of my friends who listen to this, they will tell you a time where they've had to drag me out of a taxi. They've had to drag me out of being on lying under something, lying in a cupboard, um, off a floor somewhere, normally on on concrete on a path. Or like, if I'm at a house party, I drink. I just used to black out, and no one can wake me up. And to me, at the time, I was just young and having a beer, and I could like, oh, I, I can drink loads. But actually, looking back now, it was a problem because of the anxiety I was using to mask up. So, I either if I was going out, I was going out to get blackout drunk because I couldn't see another way out of feeling the anxiety. I had I had a panic attack in the pub once, and I was like, shit. So I just went straight for a whiskey because it was the strongest thing I could think of that I like. I had a whiskey. It was at the Duke in Stourbridge. I had a whiskey and I felt fine again. Then it was that going back to that alcohol. It's sad, really. And he's looking back now. It's sad to think that I have those experiences like doing stupid shit, going to A&E because I put my hand through a window. I went to A&E because I, I was so drunk. I fell over and cracked my head open up the waterfront. And I've even cut my own shoes off once because I was so drunk. I couldn't do the shoelace. I was that drunk. I couldn't do my shoelace. I've actually cut my converse off with scissors in the kitchen to take it off. And it's like, at the time, it's funny. It's 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 a story that we tell and we've told to our friends. Like, oh, I remember the time you were so drunk that you cut your shoes off and like lost your jeans, which happened. Um, but then now, looking back at it, now I'm on this journey of self, like, of recovery almost, of self improvement. Looking back, I'm kind of imagining a bit sad, but it's um, it's a horrible thing to to, to to experience. And for me, at the time, not letting anyone know about it, that's how I coped. That. That, that was my talking, was I'd literally turn for a, for a can of beer or whatever. And... But how, how, relatable is, how, how relatable is that, though? Because how many, like when we were kids, growing up, and you'd have old Bert in the corner, and old Bert was a character. He'd make you howl. But every time you, you saw old Bert, he was sloshed. But he wasn't alcoholic. He was a character. Yeah. And so when we were growing up at 15, 16, first going in the pub, and you'd see old Bert over there, and he go, he's not a drunk. It's old Bert. He's so funny. Yeah, yeah. But you, but you never saw old Bert's kids. You never saw old Bert's wife because he was always in the pub, sloshed. Yeah. So man. when we grew up, it was normal. But yeah. really, when you look up as a as a father, as you know, we all know. You look and you go, 
outburst actually was a pretty sad blow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I can name a load of people that I know through like my dad's friends and stuff who look back now. Now, now I know what I know and the research yeah. I've done and the things that I've been told. And I look back now and I can look, I, I could probably name a handful of people. I go, actually, they've got, they've obviously got a problem and I really want to reach out to them and talk to them. And, but yeah, like it's just a, uh, my doctor told me told me a, an interesting but scary fact actually that um seventy five percent or seventy percent of um functioning alcoholics are alcoholics due to panic attacks and anxiety disorder um and i I am convinced that I nearly became one of those percentages um at one point because i don't think i don't know what would happen with the ongoing lockdowns and stuff like that and um me not having a job at the time and stuff i'm 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 glad I got the help when I did but it is. It's a. It's a. It's a strange. It's a strange stat to think that a lot of these people that we assume on the street are crackheads or what have you, that they could just be an alcoholic who's going through the same stuff I've been through, just couldn't cope, and they and they let it get to them. Um, they didn't. They didn't have the love surrounding them. And talking yeah, about that, we've yeah. got Big Sean Griffiths coming on the show uh, over the next couple of weeks to talk about mental health. He's been on the show before talking about <laughs> drug dependency, but he says one of the worst addictions we can have is alcoholism. Because once, if you go from, I don't know, two bottles of vodka a night to nothing, you can die. Your body goes into fit, so he's going to yeah. be coming on, talk about many different things, but that's one of the topics, Big Sean. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing is people need to understand, and this isn't something that I didn't understand until recently, is that you don't have to drink a beer at eight in the morning to be an alcoholic um, or, any, or, or have an issue with alcohol, because they, those are two different things. I, I wouldn't say I was an alcoholic. I just had a really bad relationship with it. Um, and I think that's what I understand. But yeah, things like that. You, you can go from drinking two bottles of vodka to coming off it for a day and having having seizures and being in hospital and stuff like that. And I think it's a, it's 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 alcohol. They say it's the most addictive thing in the world. It's it's, it's a silent killer. Um, I've always said that saying, one beer is too much. One beer is too many. A hundred is not enough. Exactly. And it's just, um, yeah, it's scary to be fair, but, I've um, I reached out. I went to the doctors next day after that big attack. Um, she put me through to um, some NHS therapy, which I'm still on the waiting list for. That's how bad of an impact COVID had. I'd done that in November, um, and I was told that I probably won't get on till March because of how many cases they're getting through because of lockdown because of COVID. Um, so I went private for a bit just to kind of get myself like straight. And I've I had my last session last week. Um, for now, it wasn't my last session forever because I don't want to say that. But I wanted to use the tools that she gave she, she gave me, um, which I'm using now to try and be a better person. I think I was saying to Kev earlier, the end game for me now is to be the best person I can be, the best husband I can be, the best dad and the best friend. Um, and I, I feel there. I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm there. I've, I'm obviously going up a big hill. Um, but one of the things that has helped me massively is telling people and doing things like this, like. Coming on here and talking to you wouldn't have happened a year ago. Um, for example, when when you called me earlier, Kev, I would have found an excuse not to talk because I couldn't have done it. I could not have done it. Even like with Lee, when we reconnected earlier last month and he called me, I was I was buzzing for it just to be like, oh, um, yeah, how's things going? But a year ago, I would have found any excuse. Oh, my phone's broke. I can't I can't take calls. Just just text. And like it's, it's just like for me, it's just small victories at the minute, and I'm and I think I'm winning, which is good. Um, and that's my only advice is to anybody who's going through anything or anything similar to what I've been through with the panic attacks, anxiety, depression. 
just put your hand up. You, you're not going to get laughed at. You're not going to get knocked down. We're living, in, we're living in an age now where mental health is, the barriers are being knocked down. And guys like yourself who do this on a weekly basis, and I've been watching for months now, and I watch two days a week when I can, normally all the time because we're in lockdown. Um, and I watch it, and it's good because you're breaking barriers, you're knocking down walls, and I think that's what people need to do. Just put your hand up and don't be scared to say, fuck, I need help, man. Just can someone, because I, I did that for years, and I'm sure you guys did the same thing. You didn't yeah. get help for a, a, a certain period of time, but the biggest relief for me was just putting my hand up and going, please just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. And yeah, but I also think it's, I think you want, I think you want to need, you want to change as well. I think as a person and what you're going through, um, you, you want, you've got to have the need, you've got to want to change, you've got to want to be, a, you've got to want to do it. There's, there's two steps to recover. Going back to square one. There's two steps, in my opinion, to recovery. First, admit you've got a problem and then accept the help to get better. Mm-hmm. Massively. But, but Kieran, uh, Aaron, is there anything you'd like to come in to? Sorry, I, I have, I do. No, no, it's your show. I do apologise. It's been perfect. I don't, I don't need to stop anything. No, you've done perfect. There's probably about 100 points, really, um, to be honest. There's nothing, there's nothing of major value other than the fact that I appreciate you sharing your story so openly and honestly, because I think there were so many facets of, of your story, whether it was after uni, prior to uni, that many of us can probably resonate with, especially with the alcohol, especially as lads. And, you know, I've been to uni myself. And as you were saying some of that stuff, I was trying to think of why I was behaving the way I was behaving. So I, I don't I can go six months without drinking. It doesn't really affect me. But if I'm in a social social area and there's a lot of people around, I need to drink. Or at least that's that's what I used to say. So I used to kind of use that as a as a mechanism, should I say, as mixing in and being myself. Whereas the weird thing is one on one, I'm completely fine with anyone. But put me in a group, I needed that alcohol, but then all of a sudden it'd go from being my best friend to almost the next day, my brain then turning turning on me and almost, yeah. you know, having this thing. But I I think what, what was useful was obviously it's it's brilliant you coming on here and now sharing it. It's these conversations that we need because I didn't know then that that was an issue. In fact, it's only now you've kind of highlighted it. I think maybe because of my anxiety that I've been having for the last 10, 15 years, that's why I drank. I drank. And again, I don't drink socially. I don't drink to have one point. I used to drink to, to black out. That was always the kind of way that I did it. Yeah. Um, so it's really, really interesting. I'm sure there's so many other people that can probably resonate with that, that sort of stuff. And again, this is what we're trying to do, obviously, with the podcast is create awareness like you said, put your hand up, get people to put their hand up. Again, I've never had a conversation with somebody who's been considered a hypochondriac. And I think it's really interesting, that perspective as well, trying to hear someone from that. So, yeah, I mean, nothing else to value, uh, that I can add a value. I think it's been it's been fantastic, mate. You carry on talking, but we did have some questions. <laughs> I can if you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by all means, we did have some questions, Lee. I don't know if you want to bring them up. I just thought, just in case um, yeah, we don't get them in. Um, Normally it's off Kieran. It's good to see someone off right team. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's Kieran's business. <laughs> so, so Pete from Endeavour Care Training. You've, you've, I think you've, you've answered this, but it might go back further. So I'll ask it again. So he says, "Hi guys, can I ask? Does Kieran think that his anxiety stems from past trauma?" Yeah, I'd say I think trauma is a bit of a strong word, but obviously. Un- having therapy, I've un- I have unearthed a few things from childhood that I didn't consider a trauma. Because to me, trauma is I've witnessed someone be killed, or I've witnessed my dad beat my mum up, or I've I've been around this or that, I've been abused. Like 
to me, that's a trauma. But actually, trauma can be anything. Trauma can be me being called fat as a kid and bullied, and I was bullied as a kid. Um, in primary school, I was bullied massively. Like, I went, I went home once with thirty odd bruises on my legs because two guys pinned me against the wall and kicked the shit out of me. Um, I did go to Bradley or primary school, so it's probably normal. But it's like, <laughs> it's it's that kind of things that you don't think they stick with you, but they do. Um, and I believe that doing stuff like that and being bullied and being called fat fuck and fat ginger, I was small, fat and ginger. I had no hope. You know what I mean? I was, I was done. I was buggered. Um, but it kind of, it kind of probably did start the, the, the anxiety. Yeah. But it also made me who I am today. It kind of gave me the confidence as well to be a bit of a, a bubbly character. It kind of gave me that. And I, and I kind of left primary school and went to secondary school, the whole new outlet life and I made loads of friends and no one bullied me and I was kind of like it sounds tacky but I was kind of the cool kid at cook school I was the kid that people spoke to everyone knew me and I knew them it was it was different yeah it was different but yeah I do think that things like bullying and things that happened in my childhood like small things can also add as trauma and yeah I think that did that did definitely play a part in 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 my anxiety and how it built up through later life definitely next question Lee no, right. The the comments, and I've I've been bringing them up as we've gone along. So, um, do you want to just say thank you to people who've read comments? Yeah. So we have got uh, Nick Townsend who's written comments. Uh, <coughs> Julie Bob Dylan. Sorry, I can't see them all. So no, but th- uh, we'll just thank everyone because he's, he's that's you're making it awkward for me again. <laughs> <laughs> can I, can uh, I just he's... add? I, oh, sorry. sorry, Kev. Just before you jump in, I was going to say I was reading Nick's comment about how he um. He basically gave up alcohol in 2010. Um, thanks, Lee. And it, it, what's interesting is the middle of that comment where he says, others around me have a problem with me now drinking soda. And I think this is an issue that we have as well, many of us. And, and I'm guilty of this as well. When one of your friends is trying to stop drinking, we're almost the ones egging that person on, not really understanding the underlying reason yeah. why they're actually trying to do it. In fact, all they're trying to do is do something, like you said, on their journey of self-improvement. There's, there's nothing worth bragging about that i can drink alcohol or that i'm going to now get intoxicated so yeah. i think that's a really interesting one and that's i mean fair play to you nick because you've done that since 2010 it's very very difficult i'd say most of my let's call them sessions or drinking drinking moments have happened a lot due to peer pressure i don't have that restraint but i'm getting better with it so i just wanted to bring that up i thought it was a really good point an interesting point as well i think as well like with with, with me personally on that note like there was only one time that I wouldn't drink at the pub and that was because I, if I was on antibiotics, um, because of having health anxiety, yeah. I read, I Googled all this stuff about how I can have allergic reactions and I can be in hospital and stuff. So that's the only time I'd go to the pub with, with my mates. I'd have a pint of orange squash or a Coke or whatever. And I, I wouldn't say people had a problem with me, but people would like keep asking me what's wrong because I was quiet mm. and I wasn't myself. I wasn't being a social butterfly. I was, very reclusive and people be like, oh, just 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 have a beer. And it was like you say, I mean, it was it was that we're the ones around people who don't drink to go, oh, I'll just have one, you'll be all right. And yeah. but 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 when you felt that, it's kind of like it's yeah, it's it's not nice at all to be fair. It's a weird one, but because I was always drinking, as soon as I stopped drinking in a pub, people were like, Are you, are you all right? Are you okay? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm on tablets and I can't have any. But because I couldn't also tell them why I wasn't drinking because I had all this anxiety going on. It was harder for me, so I used to have one coke and leave. Um, but yeah, I can I, I can see what Nick's saying there. It's definitely a yeah, and fair play for him for for doing that for eleven years. Well, there's two points I want to bring up on that. I mean, the reason why we do it, and I've been on both sides when I've packed in the booze, 
and when I know Aaron's packed in the booze, the reason why we try and get Aaron to drink them because we like drunk Aaron. We like that <laughs> part of him. And I'll tell you what, I'm a good laugh. No, 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 but this is why we do it. Like, and like, they'll go, come on, Aaron, have one. Because yeah. our relationship, Aaron, is we get drunk together. So I don't want to lose my drunk pal. That's why yeah. people do it. Well, I remember Frank Skinner talking about it because Frank Skinner's a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. And, and, he, and he says, he goes, when you pack in drink and you go, come on, Aaron, just have one with me. You'd never dream of doing that to a heroin addict. And go on, have one crank, you know, and you'll be all right. But we, we see alcoholism different to any other addiction because alcohol is very accepted. In the, you know, if you're a smoker and if you've gone, like, as uh, Nick's gone, 10, 11 years without a fag, and you go, go on, just have one box, you'll be all right tomorrow. Once the monkey's back on your back, it's hard to shift it. Massively. Great point, it, it is. Massively, yeah. I, I totally agree with that, 100%. Craig, is there anything you want to say, bro? Um, I think you've answered them. Like, going along, I've, I've thought of a few things and then you've answered it. I thought, well, that saves me asking that. Um, <laughs> in, in regards to, like, the drink and that, I mean... I've never really felt pressure. I used to feel peer pressure when I was in school, and that was that was never to drink or never to do this or the other. It was more so wearing certain clothes and that to fit in. Um, yeah. Rob, I've I've never felt anything about. I mean, I don't drink, I don't smoke. It's very rare. I can't tolerate the next day really. But I I, I wouldn't think of nothing about going to anywhere. We've done it before. And people have been having like vodka Red Bulls because they've been a pound or two for whatever it is. And yeah. I've I've drank water and it's cost me like four pound a bottle. And they've been taking the piss out of me and saying like, "You, we're getting four drinks for the, you know, the cost of your water." And I said, "Or J two O, you know, if I'm driving and that, I'm just not a drinker." So the peer pressure, I've never, I've never really felt anything. I want to touch up on something you said about um, uh, trauma the definition of trauma, because yeah. as you say, a good many people, I think, myself included, if you ask me if I had any traumatic experiences as, as a kid, I'd think, well, mom and dad were together, still together. You know, we had everything we needed. We was fed, we was watered, we was looked yeah. after. So I'd, I'd consider not having any trauma, but I was bullied all through primary school. Um, and I think that's part of why I don't drink as well, because I feel... I don't, I'm not a control freak. I suppose I've just got trust issues in some respects. Like we was on about this earlier. It's like if I was riding a motorbike, I'd go flat out. I'd go really fast. But if I was on the back of someone riding a motorbike, I'd be panicking. And and they said, well, wh- why? I said, because I'm in control. And I feel that I don't trust anyone else. And I think like when you have a drink in pubs and clubs or wherever it is, you know, I've got one of them faces people just like to smack. I, you know, I, I, people just, <laughs> mate, yeah. if there's going to be trouble, it, it, it sort of gravitates towards me, even if I'm just yeah. dancing. So yeah. I think I like to be hyper alert. And I think that's the bullying, like having to have to be aware of, of the bullies and that. And, you know, someone blacked my eye once in school. He did warn me, so I will I will give him that. But <laughs> he said, give me the ball or I'm going to black your eye. And I said, no, and he blacked my eye. But I think them, them kind of trust issues and, and being bullied that is trauma so i think when you said the definition of trauma never disregard bullying and such as that yeah. to be a trigger yeah definitely and I, same as myself i spent until i started therapy and doing my research trauma to me was if someone said to me oh, I've, I've, I've had a traumatic childhood i would suddenly think 
the dad used to beat them up or they were locked in a cupboard or they were starved, they were from a broken home, stuff like that. And you just kind of relate it all to this kind of stuff that you see in the media on TV. And actually, when you look at it, and it is things like bullying and stuff like that and being lonely as a child and everything like that, it, it, it does put into perspective, actually, yeah, actually, I, yeah, I did I, I did face some sort, some sort of trauma. But like you, I was from a family, a loving family. I had everything that I wanted. I, they, how, old, how old are you, if, you, if you don't mind me asking? Me, I'm 32, I think then. Uh, my age, so we're, we're the same age. So I think like the, the bullying and that from when we were back at school, it stopped, usually it stopped at the school gate. And I think we need to be more appreciative now of, of like the youth for today. I mean, you joke about it and say a kid's trauma today is not being upgraded to 5G or having the Wi-Fi turned off or something, you know, yeah. lightheartedly. But I think we need to understand that if if you suffered that through that kind of trauma and at that level of trauma, what are the kids potentially going to suffer knowing that bullying and victimisation and is 24-7 online? Yeah, it's online, you know, online, yeah. It's online and you see it now. at the gates. <laughs> yeah, you see it now. You see kids who, sadly, are reading the paper sometimes, young kids who have killed themselves because someone's trolled them on Instagram because they put a, a, a TikTok up of them doing a silly dance and it's just sad, really. Yeah, and like kids like my kids and stuff and next generation it's going to be a yeah it's 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 going to take a lot for them to understand it and come to terms with the fact that they're just going to plod on and not listen to it and not read it and not take it in but like like you say when when we were kids it was it was left at the school gate really you went to school you got knocked about a bit you had a couple of words a couple of names thrown at you and then that was it and you went out had your tear you yeah. went and took about with the with with your mates like and then you went back the next day and happened again but now it's everywhere sadly it's 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 in your hand it's on the xbox it's yeah, it's everywhere. And it's yeah, it's sad, very sad. I think I think friends in that can be a lot more kind now because I know they say, you know, friendship is a license to abuse, and I I, I totally get it. But it's only banter, or it's only humour if you're all laughing. And I think I had someone the once I, I dressed in denim. Um, I was on here kid about fifteen, and it was Cabrini and that back then the hoodies and stuff. Yeah. And we'd we, we'd wear Cabrini out of JD or wherever it was from. <laughs> And I remember going out there once and I was in, I don't know if it was a jean jacket or a pair of jeans. And a mate of mine actually said to me, who's made you wear that? And that was the first time I turned around and said, nobody's made me wear it. I wanted to. But I used to sing like rock and roll. My uncle, my uncle's a rock and roll singer around around the black country, or he was. Yeah. Um, and I used to sing with him from the age of like six, seven. And then when I got to like 13, 14, my mates would call for me. And I, I used to shout at my dad because... He'd say, oh, such and such has called for you. I've told him I'm singing with your uncle. And then when I got back, there was like, oh, uh-huh. and they'd be taking the piss and ridiculing yeah. me. And I understand there's banter and there's the humour, but it's only humour if you're all laughing. Otherwise, yeah. it's bullying. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I agree. And I've been, I'm probably, I've probably done that in the past to my friends. I've probably passed comment because I can't help myself. I've probably made a comment in the past. And although, <laughs> although we've all laughed in the pub, I know they haven't. And it's kind of, I could be doing that kind of bullying, yeah. And I think, yeah, this, it's, it's, it's happened to me as well. But yeah, you are right. If it's banter and it's a laugh, everyone's got to be involved and have you having a laugh with it. And you've, it's got to be lighthearted. But past that, like past the line, and it, yeah, it becomes bullying, sadly. Yeah. Because it a does go got, past the line. A, a question I've got to ask you, Keith, because you, you went on tour um, and you were doing the, um, you were the warm up for Bon Jovi, wasn't you? What was that yeah. like? <sighs> like living on a prayer, mate. 
No, I, I, the best thing about it was fucking hate Bon Jovi. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, we watched him three nights out of the five on the tour, and he's absolutely fantastic. He's 60 years old. He walks out on stage, hasn't got to say a word, and everyone's there. He's got him in his hand, and it's fantastic. He's, so, he's such a professional. Um, but yeah, the whole experience was we won a competition through Absolute Radio. Um, and we got to do the five dates. We played to about 250,000 people across five days. And we're playing with the likes of Star Sailor, um, Future Heads, Kids in Glass Houses. Um, and it was just, it's something I'll never forget. And I talk about it a lot. And I feel a bit cringy talking about it, but it's just an experience that I thought I'd never get to do. Like walking out at the Etihad Stadium on the first day of the tour to like 25, 30,000 people who, Oh, we are. We're just a bunch of working class lads who work in factories from the black country. You know what I mean, and these guys think we're we're rock stars and they're cheering and they're clapping us and it's just a really nice feeling. And we 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 literally do what we do for twenty minutes, come off, go back upstairs dressing room, get absolutely out, out of our heads because everything was free. It was a it was a mad, mad experience. Like for the first day, we 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 got on the tour bus on the on the van. We drove to Man City. We got off the van and like there's us used to dragging our own gear on the stage and setting up. We had people like bank, like security guards walking us one by one to our dressing room and sitting us there. And I was like, well, hang on a minute. What's going on with my kit? And it's been set up for me and it's been all set up ready. And all I do is I walk down and as I'm walking up to the stage, someone passing me my sticks and I go and play and I come off, pass them back and they pack it down. And yeah, it was just, um, it was a great time. And it was a great friends, like the band I was in. And we're still good mates. I just, I just had to leave for personal reasons and, it was a massive experience and I think if anyone ever gets the chance to play a football ground, um, especially Villa Park, because obviously we, we were the local, although I'm not a brummie, I hate that, but the newspapers <laughs> the, the the newspapers put us down as the local lads and we played with another band called The Enemy um, and just the, and that's when the one our family came to as well. We, we got tickets for them to come to that one, so having our loved ones there, watching us play Villa Park... A lot of our mates come with Villa fans, so they were loving it because they was like their pride and joy in the Villa, but also their best mates are playing. Yeah, it was just a crazy five days. It was a it was a lot of laughs. There was a lot of tears too. Um, and mate, was, don't you like, think? Sorry, don't you, don't you think that like you know when they was taking you to the stage and that one by one, don't you think it was the fact he was a black country guy and I was just making sure Bon Jovi's martial arms was safe. Do you know what? You're funny saying that, you know, I was convinced at one point. I was convinced because they knew we were from Coy Bank and Rowley Regis. And they thought, hang on a minute, there's a, there's a lot of money they can take to Ashwood Car Boot up here. I know, I know where that's going. But yeah, it was, it was unreal. And we kind of just had to keep pinching ourselves every gig because we sit, we sat in this room and like we had to fill out a form before the gig saying, oh, we wanted Carlin or Stella or this and that and that. And we'd, all we'd of them. Yeah, we'd, we'd get into the room and there'd be three just as tall as me, full of beer, and it would be gone by two o'clock because there's like, there's us and there's our crew. So we had our manager, our tour manager, our guitar tech, our drum tech. It would all be gone. And like the one the one afternoon, we, we were just sound checking and, and we were just sat in the in the dressing room while the, the, the techs were sound checking. And I wanted a bottle of water. I literally just wanted one bottle of water. That's all I wanted because I, I drank so much before. I was like, I need a bottle of water before I play. And our like, Stage hand came up, knocking the door. She's like, "Oh hi guys, can I can I do anything? Do any food? Do anything?" And I went, "Oh, can I get a bottle of water?" And she, ten minutes later, she came back with three crates of twenty-four bottles of water for me. And literally, <laughs> you could get anything I wanted. I, I'm convinced you could. I could have asked for anything I wanted, and they would have got it me. 
But Kate, on the flip, on, on this is your experience, you know, as being a supporter. We can see why so many of these superstars suffer with proper addiction, can't you? Yeah, Cause... and I said that right after doing that tour because I've, I've 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 done bits and bobs with different people of of, of example pro greens and streets. The streets being one example where, when I first met Mike Skinner, he come to watch me play um, with a local rapper from Birmingham, um, and he sat in the corner of. Um, Fuck, what's it called now in uh, the studio in Birmingham? I can't remember what it's called. Where Uproar is. I can't remember what the studio is called. But he was sat in the corner and someone told me that Mike Skinner was there and he wanted to chat with me. And I went over to him and he had, I can't remember now, I think it was 12 cans of Red Stripe in front of him, all empty. <clears throat> but he was sober as a judge. And you kind of say to yourself, like, you can see why these people who've made a name for themselves get into problems with drugs and alcohol because what they ask for, they will get. And I am convinced on that tour, if I asked for cocaine, they would have got me cocaine. Um, and a good example of that is when I actually got to finally play with the streets at Tamworth Palace. Um, I remember going backstage and Mike, Mike Skinner was like, oh, come come through. And our dressing room was just divided by a curtain. He was like, come through here. And there was a little coffee table in the dressing room and it had a massive bag of weed on and six lines of coke. And he was like, yeah, that's mine. And he literally just took all the lines of cocaine, rolled a spliff, and he's like, do you want to come out the back? And then you come back in and there's six more lines there. Someone's done it for him. It's just like, it's incredible, like the the power they have and they can just kick the fingers and get what they want. And for five days, that's how we felt. We could just kick our fingers. Like we asked for more beer thinking we'll get 24 cans, but we got 70 odd. And it was just like, yeah, it was just a mad experience. And you can see why, yeah, these people like, the the Amy, and... uh, well, yeah, the Amy Winehouse's of the world. And, and yeah. the, pro- the problem is we have as a Joe public, we go, look at that smackhead, look at that alky, look at that. And you think this person's got problems and the person just keeps going, here, here, I don't want any more. You, you'll get poorly if you don't have it. You've got to talk, you've got to sing it a bit, have a bit more, have yeah. a bit more. And that, that's the criminal. We, we see them as the addict. Yeah. But we don't see the pimp or the the, the best feeder. friend. The feeders, who's yeah. it people feed it to them, yeah. And it is, it's it's crazy. I think people just get, get carried away with it. I did doing the Bon Jovi tour, I was like drinking so much more than what I should have because I could, because it was there, it was available, it was it was free, it was available, it was free, and I love a freebie. But <laughs> don't we all? Like, yeah, <laughs> I was just taking it, and even better, we were taking it all with us when when we left. At the end, like two days in, we got wise to it. So we we're like, oh, can we have some more beer? So there'd been just like 72 cans of cellar up. We just took it in the back of the tour bus and did it on our own. Yeah, that's a black country, man. <laughs> yeah, we literally ended up with cans and cans and cans of beer in, in, in the van. And we just even even more on the way back. And it's, yeah, it's just a, a, a mad thing. And yeah, sadly, you can see the people like Amy Winehouse, Kirk Cobain's, people like that who, who just, yeah, just took it and sadly died early and young and is it's 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 a mad industry a very mad industry for stuff like that definitely look at lemmy and the Ozzy osbournes of the world like lemmy should have died way before 70 you know what i mean but he's one of the lucky ones i suppose and mate Ozzy osbournes a freak of nature eh? <laughs> he's nuts isn't he Fucking he nuts. but a great okay. guy it's been wonderful wonderful having you on but we're at our way now and i yes, think you've had such a well, well, no, no, thank you ever so much because I think you've given us so many different layers of conversation. I'm just going to pass it around the room. Is there anything that anyone else wants to say? 
Oh, uh, Kieran, just thank you for coming on. It's been a, it's, I'm, I'm quite shocked to be quite honest. I've known you quite a long time, and obviously we worked at the corn together for many years, and I wouldn't have known any, any of what you've really spoke about. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem, really. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have to hide it. You, no. you should, you should have felt comfortable enough at the time to, to be able to talk. Yeah. Uh, talk about it, but, the, you know, that's um, it's you grow and you learn. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'm, You're growing, I'm, I'm you here now. I'm here now. I'm doing it now. Yeah. And I just hope that it does help somebody. What, what, just just one listener who's going, <clears throat> that's that's me. I'll put my hand up. That's all I wanted to do. But yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Like It's, yeah. it's been a really good experience. We we also everyone's bombarding us with comments now, which is just <laughs> right. That's <laughs> <laughs> keeps trying to wrap it up. But, you know, we're going to go through some anyway. Of course. Um, so does anyone else want to take an Aaron's quiet over there, isn't he? Leaving it all to me, mate. Yeah, I'll leave it to you, man. Uh, so, so let me just bring this up. So, okay, so Pete from Endeavour Care Training. Um, unfortunately, I know Pete quite well from years ago, and he, he's had a um, a cancer diagnosis, uh, which is not the greatest prognosis as well. And he's just saying his anxiety for himself, where he feels his anxiety is more about his wife and his daughter. And the members of the family and how they react and manage the news. Um, Pete, you, you, it's all love over here, and um, yeah. you know, I don't really know what to say. To be quite honest, it's it came to a shock to us all. But um, keep your chin up, keep going, keep positive. I know you're trying to do that, and keep keep going at it. Uh, thank you for commenting in as well. Yeah, thank you, Pete. Uh, Lee told me the news earlier, and I just wish you all the best, brother. You know, and um, yeah, sending all my love. And Nick J Townsend, um, I think this is going back a bit now to to when we was talking about uh, buying the beers in the in the pub and your your friend not drinking and you trying to persuade them. So I buy the most obvious looking red soft drink at a gig before or afterwards. I hold it with pride. You can see every crowd at the gig or pub totally different. I feel very safe and in control. But I, I suppose that's took a while to get to as well, to be fair, to, to feel in that, that mm. way about it. No doubt it was harder at the start, and then now you're in your 11th year. It's easy, easier to do. Yeah, good. That's good going, that is. Okay, do you agree with this? Like, whenever I packed in the booze, I'm great until 9 o'clock. But after 9 o'clock, when all my best mates in the world, and me and Emma are on completely different levels, they're laughing yeah. at stuff that ain't funny, but they're laughing about it because you're drunk. That's when I've got to leave the party then. Yeah, that's yeah, I agree. Like that's what I do. When I was antibiotics and I used to go out with my mates, I'd probably have one or two cokes and go home because I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be that social butterfly and have that beer to make myself feel better. But yeah, it's that nine o'clock curfew off home. See you later. Wake up without a hangover. That's always the best one. And <laughs> um, we have Pete again. Is it the bad hair day? The four of us have hats on indoors. No, it's because no one can get the hair cut. <laughs> okay, well, let me put the central heating on. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyone else? <laughs> um, anyone else? No, other than other than a thank you, mate. Again, just to reiterate what what Lee said. Thank you for coming on and thank you um, sharing your story. And I think if. If anyone's going to take anything tangible away from it, I mean, what's standing out to me is the definition of trauma. Um, you highlighting that. So 
I think if any, anyone can reach something, you know, get something tangible, it'll be that. Don't confuse the definition of trauma with something that's just, you know, could have been life threatening or or a taking of the life or a beating or something like that. It yeah. could it could be something supposedly trivial. Um so that's what I yeah, think. Definitely. But thank you for having me. Honestly, guys, keep up the good work. It's smashing and if yeah, I can ever come over to one of your nights on a Wednesday, if I can ever get over, I will come over and I'll uh, come and sit with you guys and have a chat and maybe go for a beer one day. Who knows? Well, well the fun and games is no the key because I always get my guests to come up with a quote or a saying that's helped them get through life. But while you're thinking about it, I'm going to give you a few seconds. We're going to be coming live as we do every Thursday this week. And what we are going to be doing um, is putting a suggestion in a hat, drawing them out every week. So it could be a Safter's what do you miss from the 80s? What do you miss from the 90s? Or trauma, da, da, da. But this week, obviously, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room with schools going back and gyms reopening. So that's what we're going to be talking about this Thursday. So please tune in with your questions, your feedback, because I think we're all thinking about it at the moment. So, Kieran, have you got any quotes or sayings that have helped you get through life? I have actually. I've got. I've actually got two. Because I watched the show, so I've I've done my own work. I know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> the game watched the show, and you've never got one. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, um, I'm I'm fairly big on quotes anyway. I'm, I'm I quite like them, so I've I've kind of got two ones like that I used to look at when I started my journey um, of self improvement. One's kind of where I'm at now. So the first one's by Carrie Fisher, um, and it's sometimes you can only find heaven by slowly backing away from hell. Um, and I kind of read that on Pinterest when I started therapy, and it kind of stuck in me. Thinking like I'm, I'm not religious in any way. I'm, 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 I'm not religious anyway. But I think it's such a strong quote, and I think if you do want to find peace with yourself and become a better person, you need to back away from the fire and stop burning your ass, basically. Um, and the second one for me, which I'm living with now, is um, a person who lives in the past will always be depressed. A person who lives in the future will always be anxious, but only a person who's living for today will truly be at peace with themselves. And to me, that's the one I'm living with now. That's for me where I'm at now. I feel like I'm at the present day and I'm at peace with myself. And that's kind of, yeah, that's that's the quotes of the day. Enjoy. <laughs> well, once thank again, you. brother, thank you. No, thank you very much. So, guys, until we see each other next time, take care of yourselves and each other. ta a bit. Listen, listen, listen. And that's a wrap for another show. But if there are any comments or messages that you would like us to read out for our next podcast, please be in touch. There are also lots of different organisations at the bottom of this page and hopefully they can help you or someone you care about. Please share this to spread the word. Until we talk next time, ta bit. Listen, listen.